Once again, brothers and sisters, we turn to the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. Our scripture reading will be Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Please follow along as you can see the words up on the screen. Uh, this is John the Apostle, and he's beholding in visions these things which Christ is revealing to him. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray before we consider this passage. Our God and Father, we would pray for the manifold ministry of your Holy Spirit, even described in the book of Revelation as the seven spirits that are before your throne, the seven spirits that go out into all the earth, seven being the perfection the perfection of the Holy Spirit himself in terms of his coverage of the entire world, in terms of his omniscience, in terms of his presence everywhere. And so we pray for that Holy Spirit, uh, the one through whom you have given your revelation to this world through Christ, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our understanding, but also work upon our whole lives, our hearts in particular, that the kinds of things that are revealed to us by Christ in this passage 
that we would take them to heart. And as we see more of who Christ is, as we know Christ more deeply, that our deep desire would be to follow him more faithfully. Uh, We would pray this, Father, because only in Christ do we ultimately have life. And we pray that we might experience that life to the fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin uh, this morning with an introduction from J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God. And and, and this, this particular paragraph uh, is something around which I have, in, in many ways, uh, focused what I want to say out of this passage once again. You know, we looked at this passage last week. Uh, we recognize that Christ is revealing about himself in particular in this passage in chapter 4. He was revealing God the Father as a creator. Now in chapter 5, he's revealing himself as the Redeemer. And he presented himself according to three particular aspects of this passage. The scroll represented his judgments, and then his titles representing the fact that he was the conqueror. And then verses 9 and 10, the fact that by his sacrifice as the lamb that's slain, uh, he's worthy to open the scroll and so forth. So we looked at those three aspects of, of Christ last week as the judge, as the conqueror, and as the sacrifice. We'll revisit those again today from a slightly different perspective. But now back to this, this paragraph from G.I. Packer. Listen, listen to this, to what Packer has to say. We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and the life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Now, let me unpack this, and let me break this down. Packer speaks about trying to live in this world without knowing about God, without knowing God, about knowing the God who owns the world and controls it. So first of all, he says, that's cruelty to oneself. To neglect knowing God is self-inflicted pain and cruelty. Secondly, he says it makes the world a strange, mad, painful place. Thirdly, he says it makes life a disappointing and unpleasant business. Fourthly, he says you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded with no sense of direction or understanding of everything that's surrounding you. And fifthly, he says, you waste your life and you lose your soul. Now, in response, Jesus said something in his prayer to his father, John chapter 17, that goes to the heart of this matter of knowing God. So John 17, 3, Jesus said this, and this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So let me break that down. Jesus is connecting this matter of knowing God with eternal life and with knowing Jesus himself. In other words, 
to come to the place of having eternal life, life with God, life that is forever, life that continues in the world to come, we must know God, and to know God, we must know his son, Jesus Christ. But if we do not know Christ, then we're inflicting cruelty upon ourselves, sentencing ourselves to live in a strange, mad, and unpleasant world, where life is going to be disappointing and unpleasant, where we will fail to have a true sense of direction, and we will waste our lives and we will lose our souls. The point is, Christ changes everything. For in fact, Christ came into this world to redeem us from all of the brokenness and soul-destroying realities of life. He came to make us fit to be with God in God's eternal glory. And it's certainly presented and reflected in this passage in, in Revelation 5, where we are taught by Christ himself about his mission from the Father. Now, last week, as we've been saying actually for many weeks, the main theme of what all of this is trying to get across, the main theme that we can find in this passage, the main theme that comes out of John chapter 4, is essentially this. As the Father seeks us to worship him in spirit and in truth, then we've been saying that's the mission of Christ, to enable us to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. But particularly, as we look at this passage and the consequences of this passage, we can say, as the Father is seeking us to worship him in spirit and in truth, he has sent Jesus to make us fit for God's glory. That is to say, Christ came into this world to make us fit for not just this life, but the life to come. Christ came into this world to reconcile us to the Father so that we might have everlasting life, sharing in the glory of the God who's made us. And as Jesus says in John 17, 3, the way of this fitness is through knowing Christ. Now, the outline this week is similar to the outline from last week, but it's from a different perspective or different emphasis, particularly surrounding this matter of knowing Christ. So we can place this, this chapter in three primary points into this kind of context. To know Christ is to know, first, that we are sanctified in his judgments. Secondly, to know Christ is to know that we are conquerors by his conquering. And then thirdly, to know Christ is to know that we are worshipers by his sacrifice. The idea is this. We look at this passage. The, the entire book of Revelation is a revelation of Christ. He's the one who's revealing all of this. In chapter 4, he's revealing God the Father. In chapter 5, the things that he's revealing are particularly about himself. Obviously, his message to us is, know me, know Christ, because this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent, and to know from this passage that we are sanctified in his judgments, we are conquerors because of his conquering, and we become worshipers because of his own sacrifice. Now, first of all, then, this idea that we are sanctified in his judgments. This truth is vital to understanding the purpose and meaning of life's hardships and disappointments 
and the sense of unfairness when bad things happen to our lives. Now, this judgment idea and the concept of Christ as the judge is, as we pointed out last week, entirely connected to the scroll that is in the hand of God the Father that is given to Christ for Christ to open. It is the scroll of God's judgments that are impending and coming upon the earth. So in chapter 6, we have the first six seals being opened and the judgments that flow out of it. Chapter 7 happens to be an interlude before chapter 8, where the seventh seal is opened. And when the seventh seal is opened, you have visions of seven trumpets. And these trumpets also signal judgments that are going to come. And then after the seven trumpets, you have the seven cups of God's wrath, which occur in chapters 15 and 16. Now, how all of these uh, visions of God's judgments map onto actual history is a mystery. But the large and vivid truth is this. Everything that is happening in this world is an outworking of God's righteous justice. Let me say this again. It's an outworking of God's righteous justice and God's righteous judgments and the outworking of God's wrath. Now, this is stated for us strongly in the New Testament. For instance, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, that's not just a New Testament perspective. In fact, that's deeply embedded in the Old Testament narrative so that in Psalm 90, which is the Psalm of Moses, Moses writes this in Psalm 90, verses 7 through 12. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our lives are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon God, gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now, the point of this reminder is that Christ, the one who takes the scroll, is both the judge and he's the executor of God's judgments over all of history, over all of the earth, and over all of us who live in this world. Now, this has particular reference, the New Testament tells us, with respect to the church, even as the church is in the world today. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 16 and 19, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? 
Therefore, those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And, and the point is this, that under the judgments of God within the world, Christians themselves will experience suffering, even suffering that Peter says is connected to God's judgments, even beginning with the household of God. Now, sometimes this suffering is directly related to our own disobedience. The Westminster Confession of Faith uh, in chapter 17, verse uh, section 3 says this, Nevertheless, Christians may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit and come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. So the confession is essentially stating what Scripture tells us. Uh, Christians may, in this life, suffer not because they are innocent, but suffer because they've, they've, they've sinned against God. That can happen to us. In fact, we'll see this in just a moment and how God uses that. But there's another way that New Testament speaks about the temporal judgments that God has brought into this world. They're described in the book of Hebrews as the discipline of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, the writer says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, what the writer means is that God takes Christians through difficult times, through hardships, through adversities, through sufferings as a means of yielding in them the peaceful fruit of righteousness, which is to say that temporal judgments work sanctification in the lives of Christians who will, in fact, submit themselves and subject themselves to God in them. Two important verses in this regard come from Psalm 119. First, I'll read verse 67 and then verse 75. And I've chosen to use the New King James Version translation here. So Psalm 119, verse 67. Uh, David, as the psalm writer, says this. Listen carefully and see the connection to judgments and so forth. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Uh, what he's saying is, is that he went astray. God afflicted him. God used that affliction as discipline in his life, and it brought him back to obedience. Then we go on to verse 75, where he writes, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now, if you have your ESV open in front of you, you notice that it will say, I know, O Lord, that your rules are right. And then in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. But though that's possible, it's entirely possible to translate the word for judgments there as rules. 
but I have to say it's hardly the best translation because the verse is dealing with affliction. Rules do not afflict, but God's active judgments do. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now, I want to read from um, the Treasury of David, which is Spurgeon's great work, a commentary, not by Spurgeon himself, but by another writer on this particular thought. It's very, very powerful. Of course, the language is old. Try to follow this as I read this to you. For though the word judgments does mean God's dealings of every kind, yet here the words that follow make it apply especially to God's afflictive dealings. That is, to those dealings of his that do not seem to be for our happiness. Quoting, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Unquote. The judgments which the psalmist chiefly had in view and which he felt so sure were right were not joys, but sorrows, not things bestowed, but things taken away. Those blessings in disguise, those veiled mercies, those gifts clad in the garb of mourning, which God so often sends to his children. The psalmist knew and knew against all appearance to the contrary that these judgments were right. Whatever they might be, losses, bereavements, disappointments, pain, sickness, they were right. As right as the more manifest blessings which went before them. Quite right. Perfectly right. So right that they could not have been better. Just what were best. And all because they were God's judgments. That one thing satisfied the psalmist's mind and set every doubt at rest. The dealings in themselves he might have doubted, but not him whose dealings they were. Thy judgments. That settled all. Now, what is the significance and importance of this? If we know Christ is the judge, and if we know that Christ uses the judgments on this world to afflict us, to discipline us, to sanctify us, to grow us in his grace, to make us more conformed to the likeness of his son, then we know, we understand that the larger picture of this world, with all of its disappointments and its setbacks, all these difficult things that we experience in life, we know that these things are not in vain. We know that the hand of God is actively involved in every one of these things to sanctify us, to change us, to transform us, to be more like Christ. So the first thing we see is this. 
is that God actually, Christ actually actively sanctifies us through his judgments. Secondly, then, to know Christ is to know that we are conquerors by his conquering. So here we look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, as we noted before in the last message last Sunday, uh, in this particular verse, Christ is described as having conquered, and he does so under this double designation of royal dignity and heritage. Now, the double designation comes from two different Old Testament prophecies about this Messiah that are separated by more than a thousand years. Uh, the first, the line of the tribe of Judah, comes out of Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10. This is Jacob's last prophetic blessing given toward his sons and the 12 tribes. And the tribe of Judah is singled out, given the symbol of the lion, was prophesied to become the royal tribe from which kingship over Israel was going to come, as well as kingship over all of the nations. And then the second description, the root of David, comes out of Isaiah, uh, the 11th chapter where that passage prophesies the time of the coming of the Messiah coming from the line of David, and where the final effect of his coming is going to be the entire world and all of the nations actually filled with the knowledge and the glory of God. Now, when we connect these titles and the fact that Christ has conquered according to these titles, we arrive at this conclusion. The conquering of Christ has set in motion the coming of his kingdom to this world. But furthermore, the conquering has made the ransomed people of God to be the main citizens of that kingdom, even those who are going to reign with Christ in that kingdom, according to what it says in verse 10. And you have made them a kingdom and priest, and they shall reign upon the earth. Now let's notice what this means. Though we die, yet we will live again. And we shall live as those who will reign with Christ in his coming kingdom. This is truly a glorious future. But here's the practical question. How does that truth help me now? Uh, since these particular statements are about what's going to happen when Christ returns. How am I a conqueror now because Christ has conquered? Well, let's go back to think about what it means to live in this world without knowing Christ. The world is a strange and mad and painful place. If there is no truth, to Christ being the Messiah and the Savior. And life will always be a disappointing and unpleasant business where we have no sense of direction, no real understanding of what is going on. If Christ isn't real, if we don't know Christ, uh, the only destiny that we can really predict is going to happen to us with certainty is death which would be the end of everything. 
And in light of that, life would seem to be a waste. Uh, when the best you can do never brings you a guarantee that tomorrow won't end in tragedy. We know Macbeth's famous line given to us by Shakespeare goes this way. This life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets this hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Macbeth's way of saying that life is brief and meaningless, and that is the stark reality of life. But Christ, as the conqueror, changes everything. Essentially, that was Paul's challenge to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15 concerning the resurrection. Uh, Paul was saying this, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has conquered death, and that changes everything. God has guaranteed that every true believer will also conquer death by faith in Christ. Otherwise, why not just simply eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die? Tomorrow we cease to exist. Everything changes when you know Christ. When you know that you have life that is eternal, and you have life that's eternally destined to have meaning and purpose, that makes everything absolutely different. The world is not a mad and unpleasant place, or the places where it's disappointing and unpleasant can be endured for the sake of knowing that there is Christ who was conquered and there is the life to come. And finally, to know Christ is to know that we are worshipers by his sacrifice. Now, this is what we see in verses 9 and 10. In those two verses, three things are laid out for us. Uh, the death that ransoms, the people who are ransomed, and the purpose of their being ransomed. So first of all, we have the death that ransoms. We have the lamb who is slain. It's a sacrificial death. It is a payment price that purchases life for others. That death of Christ expiates their guilt. It propitiates the wrath of God in view of their ungodliness. It reconciles God, who uh, beforehand was an enemy of sinful people. And then it redeems them from the power of sin and death. In a word, it saves them. And then notice, secondly, the people who are ransomed. They come from every part of the world. Every people of the world, every language of the world, and every nation. They are the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham when he said, And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we see this reflected in Revelation 7, 9 to 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Which points to then the purpose of their being ransomed. By Christ's sacrifice, he has made all of the redeemed to be his kingdom and to be priests within that kingdom so that they might reign with Christ forever. We should not miss the significance of what it means to be a priest in this sense. Of all the worshipers of ancient Israel, it was the priest who were those who were involved in worshiping all the time, every day. And of all the worshipers that were redeemed in Israel, it was the priest and the priest only who had constant access within the tabernacle or the temple who would dwell continually within the household of God. And all of this signifies being a priest in the kingdom of Christ forever is that of living in the presence of God continually and worshiping God continually which is the highest form of the redeemed life. It is the fulfillment of what David sought and prayed for in Psalm 27, verse 4, when he said, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that is what I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. Let's bring this all together and let's wrap this up by returning again to Packer's quote. Let me read it once again. We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you waste your life and you lose your soul. But knowing Christ changes everything. When you know that he is the judge, and his judgments are ruling the world, then we are able to see that the hardships of life are part of his judgments upon the world, but they come to us as tools of his discipline to change us and to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ and to make us more fit for eternal glory as well as making us more dependent upon Christ here and now. And it's also the case that life always seems to be dealing us disappointments and unpleasantness. It often seems like life is working against us, 
And there are days that we feel deeply, deeply defeated. But life is never for us. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Life is never for us a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Life is what Christ brings to us, eternal life, because Jesus has conquered death, and we too will conquer death because we have eternal life. And this life, even though it is not a tale told by an idiot, this life is not even worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed to us. But finally, you and I know as Christians that the worst part of life is the fact that we are not truly intrinsically good persons. We are so prone to all sorts of temptations and sins. We often think, who could possibly love us if they really knew us? To which the answer is this. Christ changes everything. For Jesus himself opens up the book of Revelation with a benediction and good news. Because he says in the first chapter, beginning in the second half of verse 5, he says this, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The one who is the judge of all the earth is the one who has conquered the grave and gives us everlasting life. He is the one who has loved us even in our sins and has made us to be a kingdom, citizens, and priestly worshipers whose lives are to be lived to the glory and the dominion of God forever and ever. Because of Christ, who changes everything, we have life that is worthy to be lived. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for Christ. And we thank you that because of all that Jesus has done for us, sovereignly governing all of history, conquering death, enabling us to conquer death as well in him, and then dying for us even when we were sinners, transforming us to become those who would live in your household and worship you forever. Our Father, we come knowing that knowing Christ, everything changes for us. For this we are thankful, for this we are grateful. Enable us then to live in accordance with all that Christ has revealed to us. Enable us to live knowing that life is worth living because of all that Christ has done for us. Enable us then to live to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.